Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ, episode 138, To the Breach. Last time, Mehmet battered the walls of Constantinople to the point that a significant portion around the Lycus River, one of the two weak points, collapsed. Gistiani built an earthen rampart in its place in an effort to shore up the defensive line. In spite of the fact that Mehmet lost his largest cannon in an explosion, the smaller guns continued to pound the city. Meanwhile, Byzantine and Ottoman troops fought over the dry moat as Ottomans filled it during the day, only to have the Byzantines and Italians clear it out at night. And in this way, the siege dragged on to April 18, 1453. Now, Mehmet decides to launch his first concerted attack against the wall, and Giustiani prepares to meet The call to prayer within the Ottoman camp rose on April 18, 1453 with a sense of added purpose. Mehmet was ordering an attack. Not a skirmish, a coordinated attack. The walls had been broken, not completely, but enough that the Ottomans had decided to try. Two hours after sunset, Mehmet ordered the attack to begin. Now, there would be a lot of differences between this attack and the one that would ultimately change Constantinople into Istanbul. This time, Mehmet ordered his crack troops forward in the initial attack. His janissaries, his imperial archers, his javelin throwers, under cover of darkness, they moved forward silently until within range of the defenses, when they surged forward with a blood-curdling battle cry. Constantine seems to have been caught flat-footed by the attack. He ordered the church bells rung, and the terrified populace sprang into action as soldiers quickly mounted the walls and took their posts. Had there been an assault across the whole length of the walls, I think it might have succeeded. Clearly, Constantine thought so. Luckily for him, it was an attack directed against the portion of the Lycus River section. Mehmet then ordered the cannons to fire under the quote-unquote cover of the cannon fire, as well as the arrows, his men advanced to the moat. 
The hail of arrows made it impossible for the defenders to attack while the Ottomans crossed the moat, losing that defensive advantage. And the Janissaries were able to get their scaling ladders up against the wall. They were then able to tear down some of the ramparts protecting the defenders from the arrows, but an attempt to burn down Giustiani's wooden wall failed. The terrain was now working against the attackers, and the earthen wall was proving its worth. The battle must have been terrifying. Consider the following recount from one chronicler. Quote, The clatter of cannons and arquebuses, the roar of the bells, the cracking of arms, like lightning flashing from both weapons, as the crying and sobbing of the people, the women and the children of the city, made one believe that the sky and the earth had joined the earth and they both trembled. One could not hear another man's words. Weeping and screaming, the cries and sobs of the people, the roar of the cannons, and the pealing of the bells combined into one din resembling great thunder. Again, rising from many fires and explosions of cannons and arquebuses, the smoke thickened on both sides and covered the city. The armies were unable to see one another and did not know against whom they fought. End quote. I've never been in a battle a fact for which I am eternally grateful. But I cannot imagine the terror of fighting in the dark. In the narrow breach of the Lycus River, the men slashed and hacked at one another, the only light coming from the moon high above. Slowly, the tide began to turn to the defenders' advantage. They had natural advantages right now that Ottoman numbers could not reverse. They had the ground in their favor. They had heavy armor. They were fighting from above. Slowly, the defenders drove the Ottomans back. After four hours, it was all over. Constantine and Giustiani had held them off. For now. The defenders collapsed out of sheer exhaustion. The range for the Ottoman dead is from the whopping 18,000 to about 200. 200 is more likely accurate. Still, it was a major setback for the Sultan, who responded by doubling down on his cannon bombardment. But for the moment, the city enjoyed a reprieve. As the first attack on the walls failed, Mehmet's gaze turned to the sea. In addition to cannons, he had brought to Constantinople a real fleet. His goal was simple. Remove the great advantage the Byzantines had always enjoyed over an Arab army, their naval superiority. Unless Mehmet could at least contest Constantine's control over the sea, Constantinople could be easily resupplied by the Greek islands. So back in 1452, Mehmed constructed a fleet. In fact, according to one source, Mehmed himself thought his fleet would be more important than his army in the battle to come. Belying again that this is a completely religious or nationalistic contest, most of the sailors manning Mehmed's new fleet were either Greeks or Italians. The Ottomans had to adopt the ships of their enemies much as they had done with gunpowder. Now, the Mediterranean fighting vessels used in 1453 would have looked a lot like the ones used by the Romans in 200 BC. Basically, we're talking about an oared galley. In the late Middle Ages, galleys were very thin and very sleek, generally about 100 feet long and only about 12 feet wide. They would have a raised plow on the front end with which to act as a fighting platform. 
Now, galleys sailed extremely low in the water, perhaps clearing the waterline by only two feet. This was to allow the rowers to be in one single row on the deck. And the goal, again, was exactly as it had been in Roman times. Close with the enemy ships, board them, and try to turn a sea battle into a land one. Galleys did have sails, but certainly in combat, they were powered by their skilled rowers. These were no random slaves. These men were extremely well-trained. Think about it. You had to power an oar weighing over a hundred pounds in perfect time with everyone else on your ship, and your space to move about is roughly the size of a coach seat on a modern airplane. Good luck. Hence, these men were very strong and highly skilled. But when working in unison, a galley was extremely fast and maneuverable in battle. A good galley could maintain 7.5 knots for about 20 minutes. So, for those non-sailors out there, a knot is about 1.15 miles per hour. That would mean galleys were moving at about 8.6 miles per hour for 20 minutes. Now, these were not ships designed to travel long distances over open water. So low as they were, galleys were liable to flip in even moderately choppy seas. Moreover, their hulls were light and fragile and would shatter easily. These were the ships that Mehmet would take to battle, alongside a few triremes, galleys of the same concept, but with oars grouped in threes, and a few small but very fast raiding galleys that the Europeans called fustai. Now, obviously, it took Mehmet a long time to build this fleet, and their Venetian spies tipped off Constantine well in advance, so he knew what was coming. Hence, as we discussed last time, the chain was drawn across the Golden Horn on April 2nd, and Mehmet's galleys certainly were not going to be able to do anything about that. To face Mehmet's brand new army, Constantine had his usual motley crew. He had about 10 ships of his own, plus several from the Italian trade-in cities, and even one from Provence. All in all, about 37 ships facing Mehmet's fleet of 140. Now, technically, none of Constantine's ships were even military ships. However, in the Mediterranean, filled as it was with pirates, that distinction was a fairly fine one. These were sailing ships with much higher hulls, and that would give them an advantage over Mehmet's galleys. Heck, one large stone hurled from the deck of a merchant ship might easily sink one of Mehmet's galleys. Though, to pack some punch, Mehmet did order some of the larger galleys loaded with small cannons. On April 9th, 1453, Constantine ordered his ships drawn up on the Golden Horn side of the chain in battle order to protect it, and hence the harbor from attack. Because of their size, even the 10 largest of these, when placed side by side, ran the entire length of the chain from Constantinople to Galata. On April 12th, Mehmet's fleet finally arrived. The people of Constantinople turned out to see so many ships coming, but seeing the decided ships arrayed to defend the chain, Mehmet's fleet turned around and sought the safety of the opposite shore. The goal for the Ottoman fleet was therefore threefold. Number one, blockade the city. Number two, force the Golden Horn if possible. 
And crucially, three, prevent any relief force from entering the harbor. On April 18th, the same day as he assaulted the land walls, Mehmed ordered the Navy attempt to force the boom. I assume the coordination was intentional because that's the exact same day that the assault on the land walls is taking place. So on April 18th, the Navy rode up to within about a bow shot of the chain and then loosed a volley of flaming arrows and stone balls on the ships protecting the harbor. Certainly, it was a concerted attack, but it did very little good against the higher, stoutly constructed merchant carracks. The Ottoman small cannons were just too small to do any real damage. Plus, attacking from below, the Ottoman sailors ran into the same disadvantage as the Ottoman soldiers attacking the ramparts. The Italians manning their ships were used to dealing with pirates in the Mediterranean. They carried incendiary devices, as well as heavy stones, that they could drop on the Ottoman thin-hulled ships. The Ottoman ships had no chance. They took a few quick casualties and withdrew. Round one went to the defenders. A well-prepared merchant vessel could actually hold its own against a concerted galley attack at this point in history, which was a very lucky thing indeed for Constantinople. So as the sun rose on April 19, 1453, Constantinople held. It had repulsed the attacks on its land walls and on the chain. The mood in Mehmet's camp was utterly despondent. Constantinople, of course, was not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. Constantine knew he could not keep this up forever. The siege had barely been going on for two weeks, and already some of his defenses lay in tatters. He needed help from the rest of the Christian Europe countries, and he needed it now. The problem for Constantine was that things had changed. Had it been 1095, the West probably would have responded with a crusade. But, and he didn't know this yet, crusades were a thing of the past, and the complex internal politics of the Italian city-states now held Constantine back. The Pope seems to have wanted to help, but without the support of either Venice or Genoa, there was very little he could do. The medieval world was giving way to the early modern one, and crusades were a thing of the medieval world. The Italians had no interest in becoming defenders of the faith. They were prosperous traders and very good at their jobs, plain and simple. Perhaps had the Genoese and Venetians understood the long-term ramifications of Constantinople's fall, they might have done something. But no one at the time could have foreseen that the Ottoman victory at Constantinople would dramatically alter the balance of European power to Italy's detriment. However, the loss of the Venetian ship to the throat cutter did change some Venetian minds. Hence, back on February 19, 1453, the Venetian Senate voted to send a fleet of two armed transports and 15 galleys in an effort to relieve the city. They set sail for Constantinople on April 8th. 
Unfortunately, the orders that were dictated to the captain were not especially helpful, including one not to engage with the Ottomans, which, given the fact that they were blockading the city, was going to be kind of tough. After a series of odd setbacks that we're not going to get into, the Venetian fleet wound up not even leaving Italy until April 19th, the day after the first major assault on the walls. However, on April 20th, a different fleet appeared in the Sea of Marmara. Back in March, the Pope commissioned his own Genoese fleet of three ships laden down with arms and supplies and sent them to the city. At 10 in the morning on April 20th, the Genoese flags were spotted by lookouts within the city, fluttering in the distance. Mehmet saw the ships too, though. He ordered his commander in charge of his fleet to either take those ships or don't come back. Said commander set out for his ship immediately. Meanwhile, the Genoese ships were fighting the unpredictable currents and winds that cursed the part of the Sea of Marmara. The Ottomans, realizing their sails were useless, lowered them and rowed steadily down the straits. The Ottomans must have been hopeful for success, as it was about 140 ships to three. The Ottoman commander got alongside one of these ships and ordered the Genoese to lower their sails. They did not. And so the Ottomans opened fire, launching small cannonballs, arrows, and incendiary devices. However, just like with the attempt on the chain, the Genoese Karaks were much taller and tougher, and none of these Ottoman efforts amounted to anything. The Genoese convoy had actually just reached the point at which they could turn into the Golden Horn when the vagaries of war once more came into play. The wind suddenly dropped. The ships were sitting ducks. Seeing the ships drifting helplessly, the Ottoman commander ordered his fleet to close and board. Suddenly, the Sea of Marmara looked like dry land from a distance, as the masts and hulls of over 100 vessels seemed to be interlocked. The Ottomans threw boarding bridges up towards one of the ships and began efforts to board it. Yet, the Genoese were heavily armored and still had the advantage of the higher position. They smashed the heads and chopped off the hands of those trying to scale the ladders, while from the crow's nests above, Genoese sailors hurled down javelins. Many Ottoman galleys were sunk during the battle, as men from the crow's nests just chucked heavy rocks down directly onto their hulls. For two hours, the battle raged. In spite of all their advantages, the Genoese began to feel the effects of the nonstop fighting. As one Ottoman galley was sunk or withdrew, another appeared to take its place. After three hours, the situation to those watching on the walls looked bleak. Eventually, the Genoese were going to run out of missiles and out of energy. Then, at least to the Byzantines, it appeared the very hand of God intervened. To the south, wind began to blow once more. The sails of the Genoese ships swelled, and the ships began to move forward once more. They raced to the chain, 
and two large Venetian galleys came out from behind it to convince the Ottomans not to try to pursue. They did not. Mehmet could only rage and order his fleet to pull back. Suddenly, it seemed like the momentum was back with the defenders. Mehmet's massive fleet was no match for the quality of the Italian Karaks or their crews. While those three ships probably did not bring in much in terms of men and materials, they had given the people of Constantinople desperately needed hope. It was around that time then that Constantine decided to make Mehmet a peace offer. He would pay the Sultan a huge indemnity, which would allow Mehmet to save face and the city to remain Constantinople. It was probably a good idea to make that offer at the time. A long, drawn-out siege would be very dangerous for a Sultan who was still very new. What if the Janissaries revolted? What if a large relief force did come to the city? What if dysentery swept the Ottoman camps? These were all real concerns for the Ottomans, and there were those in the Ottoman high command that wanted to take the offer and withdraw. At around the same time, Mehmet received a letter from a leading religious figure in the camp detailing the dire mood of the Ottoman forces. It read as follows, quote, The event has caused us great pain and low morale. Not having taken this opportunity has meant that certain adverse developments have taken place. One is that the infidels have rejoiced and held a tumultuous demonstration. A second is the assertion that your noble majesty has shown little good judgment and ability in having your orders carried out. Severe punishments will be required. If this punishment is not carried out now, the troops will not give their full support when the trenches must be leveled and the order is given for the final attack. End quote. So on April 21st, Mehmet decided to send a message, but it would not be one of surrender. Instead, he rode out to where the fleet was stationed and summoned his naval commander. Furious, he initially ordered the man to be impaled right then and there. But, appalled, Mehmet's counsel begged him to reconsider. He did. Instead, the man was to be lashed in front of everyone and stripped of his position and wealth, which was then redistributed to the Janissary Corps. Having done this, Mehmet rode back to convene a meeting of his inner circle to discuss Constantine's peace offers. While some were still in favor of accepting the deal, the clear majority were for continuing the siege. Mehmet sent a message back to Constantine. There could be no peace unless the city was surrendered. Instead, Mehmet countered, giving Constantine the right to withdraw, turn the city over, and rule in his own right in the Peloponnese. It was an offer designed to be rejected, and it was. Again, Constantine was never going to accept any offer that resulted in the fall of the city. He was cognizant of his role in history and did not want to be the emperor who lost Constantinople. He remembered the words of Emperor Manuel II in 1397. Quote, Lord Jesus, 
Let it not come to pass that the great multitude of Christian people should hear it said that it was in the days of the Emperor Manuel that the city, with all its sacred and venerable monuments of the faith, was delivered to the infidel. End quote. With all this going on, the cannons continued to pound the Theodosian walls. The Ottoman fire was now intensely concentrated on a specific section of the wall near the Lycus River by the St. Romanus Gate. Both sides knew that this was perhaps the single most vulnerable section of the wall. Under this constant barrage, it was around the 19th or 20th of April when a massive tower called the Bactician collapsed. This was a huge breach in the defenses, and the defenders were suddenly very vulnerable. The defenders, however, got lucky. Mehmet was still off debating the future of the war with his commanders, so no one gave an order to advance, even though the defenders realized the wall could be breached with only about 10,000 men, giving the state of the defenses after the collapse. This gave the defenders time to regroup. And that did illustrate one weakness in Mehmet's system. Everyone was so terrified of his reaction, no one was willing to act on their own initiative. So that night, Gistiani worked to repair the defenses. They filled barrels with earth and rolled them into position over the fallen tower. This was then packed with more earth and branches, and according to the Byzantine, was just as strong as the tower had been, though I personally doubt that. On April 21st, 1453, Mehmed increased the pace of his attack. For the defenders, they could only sit, watch, and react. Constantine and Giustiani lacked the ability and lacked the men to even consider organized sorties at this point, because every fighting man was desperately needed in a purely defensive position. Nonetheless, Giustiani continued to prove himself to be a defensive genius. He used the meager resources he had into great effect, creating a wall of earth and barrels where stone had failed. Mehmed, however, had an idea. If he could somehow pressure the city from the other side, then he could force Constantine to thin out his defenses. But the great chain blocking the Golden Horn prevented his navy from pressuring the city from above. Now, no one knows exactly when Mehmet came up with this plan. One of Mehmet's strengths was actually in keeping secrets to himself and himself only until it was too late for anyone to react. Therefore, if he could not get through the chain, he just reasoned he'd go around it. You see, the chain only protected the front of the harbor. Mehmet has still controlled all the ground around the Genoese enclave of Galata on the other side of the Bosphorus. If he just moved his ships around the city and then dropped them back into the water, he would be on the other side of the chain. Then the Ottoman navy could force Constantine to take men from the land walls and place them on the sea walls. Early on during the siege, Mehmet ordered a road built around Galata. This, he reasoned, could now be used to transport his ships. As a distraction, Mehmed had several guns brought to face the harbor and had them fire on the ships and the horn itself. Meanwhile, and in complete secret, Mehmed had logs brought up as primitive rollers, teams of laborers moved into position, and cradles built to lift the ships from the water. 
Why the Genoese did not notice all this still remains a subject of debate today. Some think they were distracted by the guns. The Venetians thought, and some still do, that they were being paid by Mehmet to look the other way. On the morning of April 22nd, the first ship was taken from the water and placed on rollers. As the Byzantines went to church that Sunday, they were completely unaware of just how badly they were about to be outflanked. Mehmet's efforts required huge outlays of manpower and materials, as new logs were slowly placed in front of the ship as it crept up a steep slope towards a ridge and then back down towards the Golden Horn. Suddenly, the Byzantines saw the ships moving as though sailing over dry land. A sense of pure horror overtook the city as Constantine rushed to see the truth of what was happening. However, Mehmet had smartly moved several guns to the edge of the water where the ships were being dropped into the harbor, preventing the Byzantines from doing anything about it. At first, it was only the smaller ships that were moved. Eventually, larger crafts were disassembled and then rebuilt on the shore of the Golden Horn. Then those two were dropped into the water. Because of Mehmet's pressure against the land walls and the protection of the chain, the sea walls within the horn itself had barely been defended at all. Constantine recognized the problem. He had to defend the sea walls now, but he could hardly take his best men and move them to a point at which there might be an attack when it still appeared certain that there would be an attack on the land walls. Moreover, the Venetians were in charge of the naval defenses, and now their navy was trapped in a closed strait only a few hundred yards wide, with the Ottoman navy now less than a mile away. Consider the following eyewitness account. Quote, when those in our fleet saw the Fustai, they were undoubtedly very frightened because they were certain that one night they would attack our fleet together with their fleet, which was out at the columns on the other side of the chain. Our fleet was inside the chain. The Turkish fleet was both outside and inside the chain. And from this description, it can be grasped how great the danger was. And we were also very concerned about fire, that they might come to burn the ships laying at the chain. And then we were perforce compelled to stand to arms at sea, night and day, with great fear of the Turks. End quote. Now, it was obvious to the Venetians that the best course of action was to destroy the Ottoman fleet within the chain immediately. Constantine and Giustiani agreed. Everyone agreed that the attack was necessary. The debate was really about how. On April 23rd, they debated. Some wanted a coordinated attack with the Genoese ships from Galata in broad daylight. However, other men pointed out that would take time because they would need to negotiate with the Genoese. Some wanted to use a land force to destroy the Ottoman guns on the shore. But given the few soldiers they could spare, that was considered too risky. They settled on a third option suggested by the captain of a galley. Attack at night and burn the Ottoman ships. Do it now and in complete secrecy without even consulting the Genoese. Everything depended on speed and surprise. The Council of War voted and picked the third option. The captain who suggested it then volunteered to lead the attack and everything was set. On April 24th, preparations were made. Two large carracks were selected and wadded sacks of wool dropped over their sides to offer some protection from the cannonballs should they be fired upon. In between these larger ships would be several 
quick galleys packed with Greek fire. The idea was that the larger ships would shield the small ones until they could dart out and set fire to the closely packed Ottoman ships. Everything was ready. Then the Genoese somehow got wind of the plan and decided they wanted to help. Reluctantly, the Venetians agreed, which meant the attack had to be postponed. This delayed the plan until April 28th. Two hours before dawn, the fleet sailed out from under Galata's sea walls. The distance was less than a mile, and the ships moved silently. Giustiani himself rode upon the lead merchant ship. Then, for reasons that remain mysterious still today, the same captain that had suggested the plan and designed it suddenly broke from it. His galley unexpectedly darted forward from the merchant vessels much earlier than they had planned. For a moment, there was silence. Then the Ottoman guns opened up on the shore. One initial shot missed, but the second one hit, and the galley sank instantly. In the darkness, all was confusion, and no one could see anything, so the remaining ships just pressed forward. Two cannonballs went straight through the hull of another one of the larger galleys, and only with difficulty was it rowed back to safety. The balance of the ships pressed forward, but the Ottoman fire at this point was too intense, and the plan had to be called off. But the two larger merchant vessels still remained anchored in defensive positions, completely unaware that the plan had failed. The Ottomans, sensing an opportunity to take them, rode out and a fierce battle on the water ensued. The Ottomans and Venetians fought for nearly two hours, but once more, the larger merchant vessels proved to be too difficult for the Ottomans to take. The plan had failed. Constantine was despondent. Inside the Ottoman camp, there was jubilation. Making matters worse, some of the men from Constantinople who had taken part in the attack had not drowned. They were captured, and on April 29th, the next day, Mehmet had them impaled in full view of the city walls. Constantine retaliated, executing 260 Ottoman prisoners on the walls in full view of the Ottoman camp. However, with control of the horn gone, at least uncontested control, it was clear that the initiative had swung back to Mehmet. Next time, Mehmet's guns continue to pound the walls, and Constantine considers a drastic final plea for help. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.